0: Legal Face-Off on WGNRadio.com is brought to you by McCorkle Litigation Services, leaders in court reporting and legal technology. Hey, what's up,
1: y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan. And this is how we do it. And right now you're listening to Legal Face-Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers, Rich Lenkoff and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. And welcome to the legal face off
2: podcast on WGN radio with Tina Martini of McDermott, Will and Emery and Rich Lenkoff with Downey & Lenkoff. I'm your host, Ron Brown with WGN Radio. Now, Ohio voters recently approved a constitutional amendment to allow abortions in the state, but not without a misinformation campaign by the governor, according to critics. Our first guest, Case Western University professor Jonathan Anton, has taught constitutional law and mass media law.
3: Professor, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me.
4: So, Professor, last week, Ohio voters approved a constitutional amendment known as Issue 1, which ensures access to abortion and other forms of reproductive health care in the state of Ohio. Can you please tell us more
3: about this new law? The, the amendment protects not only a right to abortion, but also to contraception, fertility treatment, continuing a pregnancy, and miscarriage care. Uh, it says that the state can't uh, burden, penalize, prohibit, or interfere with uh an individual's voluntary exercise of the right, um, or uh any person who's assisting in the uh in the uh, exercise of the right. Um it does allow the state to impose pre viability restrictions on abortion, but only if The state is showing that uh, doing so advances the individual's health in accordance with widely accepted and evidence-based standards of care. Uh, It allows for more restrictions after viability, but again, requires exceptions for the life or health of the patient uh, if uh, that is the professional judgment of the treating physician. so it's a pretty expansive uh, right, and it was designed uh, to protect reproductive rights—not just abortion rights, but other rights that might be called into question as a result of the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling in the Dobbs case last year.
5: Professor, there is, of course, many anti-abortion forces that came out strongly against issue one. Uh, lots of groups, including the Protect Women Ohio Coalition. Um, Many proponents of Issue 1 said that these anti-abortion groups were misstating and uh, misinforming about the campaign. Can you explain that a little bit further?
3: Well, what was interesting is that much of the opposition to Issue 1 was not based on abortion itself, although that was clearly the, the main focus of the discussion on both sides. Um, There were a lot of peripheral claims, um, for example, that Issue 1 would exclude parents from their daughter's uh, decisions about whether to have abortions. Um, Issue 1, as the Attorney General of Ohio, who himself opposed Issue 1 and is staunchly anti-abortion, said Issue 1 doesn't address parental consent. Uh, and that was pointed out repeatedly. There is every reason to think that the Ohio parental consent law will stay on the books unaffected. But there also was a claim that somehow uh, issue one would allow uh, minors to get uh, uh, gender affirming care as a constitutional right. Um, and that was a pretty wild claim. Uh, there's nothing in issue one that addressed gender-affirming care for anybody. Um, and uh, the, uh, the claim was based on the notion that the list of rights in issue one included but was not limited to. But in fact, courts have been interpreting legal documents that say including but not limited to for decades, if not centuries. And it would be a real stretch to say that gender-affirming care for anybody was encompassed in issue one. But those were the sorts of claims that were being made. Um, And I think that they were being made because, as we saw in the results of the vote last week, um, most Ohioans uh, are against really serious restrictions, uh, severe restrictions on abortion rights, even if they're ambivalent about how widely available abortion should be.
4: So, Professor, some legislators who strongly oppose abortion have proposed to prevent the Ohio courts from hearing cases arising under this new constitutional amendment and would make it an impeachable offense for any judge to do so. Um, How do you think this is likely to play out?
3: Well, I think it's probably not going anywhere. Uh, the, The people who have proposed this Um, are not lawyers, uh, and they are among the most extreme conservatives in the state legislature. Um, The governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine, who is strongly anti-abortion and who campaigned against issue one, has said that this is a bad idea. And the House speaker, who was also pro-life, has said uh, it's a bad idea as well, um, so I'd be surprised if this got the the these legislators more than their 15 minutes in the spotlight., um, but I think that if somehow this were to pass, um, that sort of of restriction on the authority of the courts would almost certainly be struck down. Uh, it violates any number of provisions of the state constitution. Uh, And I think it violates some provisions in the federal constitution as well. Um, So I think that this is kind of a a grandstand play uh, that we ought to pay attention to. But I don't think we should be overly concerned that it's going to go anywhere.
5: Professor, last question here. We appreciate your time on Legal Faceoff. With this uh, Ohio passage of this legislation, Ohio is now the seventh state to uh, decide to protect abortion access. We expect uh, other states like Arizona, Missouri, and elsewhere to vote similarly next year. How important do you think this win was for the abortion movement uh, after Dobbs? And also, how do you think it will play out in the presidential election next year?
3: Well, I think that this is a very important win for uh, for abortion rights supporters. Uh, I think it reflects the efforts by uh, abortion opponents to kind of skew the playing field, and they've and they've come up uh, they've come up short uh, by a wide margin. Um, I think it adds to the momentum for other states, but every state is going to have to play this out on its own. As for the presidential election, Ohio is now a pretty clearly Republican state. Uh, in presidential elections and, uh, and in other areas, the Republicans control all the statewide offices, um, except for one U.S. Senate seat that's up for uh, election next year. There are some Democrats on the state Supreme Court, uh, two of whom are up for uh, election next year. Um, but, uh, uh, however those races play out, uh, I don't, really expect ohio to be competitive in the in the presidential election uh whoever the candidates wind up being
2: all right and thank you to our first guest case western university professor jonathan enton
3: thanks for having me rich Lenkoff is an attorney
1: with downey and Lenkoff, a firm with offices in illinois indiana and wisconsin rich is consistently recognized by clients like mcdonald's target macy's wendy's and the chicago bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 to present and Leading Lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. Rich is also a producer, with credits including 85, The Greatest Team in Football History, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. In addition to hosting WGN's legal face-off since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey & Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com. Teenage boys are using artificial intelligence
2: technology to create deepfake nudes of their female classmates now. Our next guest addresses that, Natalie Elizarov, She's an intellectual property attorney.
4: Hi, Natalie. Thanks for joining us. Hi there. Thank you so much. So last week, an investigation was launched at a New Jersey high school after female students discovered that some of their male classmates had created deepfake nude pictures of them using an AI website and then shared them on social media. For those of our listeners who may not be familiar, can you explain what a deepfake is and tell us more
6: about what happened here? Absolutely. Well, a deepfake is just pretty much a synthetic type of media, usually images, videos, recordings, uh, text, but it's created using artificial intelligence and various machine learning techniques. The term deepfake was actually first coined by a Reddit user back in 2017 on a forum that was dedicated for deep learning software and synthetically uh, face swapping uh, women celebrities into pornographic videos. Uh, What happened in the, what happened with the New Jersey situation was just that Um, there was about 30, there was about 30 women, 30 girls at the Westfield high school in New Jersey that found out that some of the boys have been sharing nude photographs of them. Obviously, they were shocked because they hadn't shared any of those kind of images. And they found out that they used AI software to face swap their faces onto pornographic pictures. And uh, it happened sometime over summer break.
5: Um, Natalie, any sense of how pervasive a problem this is beyond this one New Jersey high school, particularly obviously among
6: uh, younger people? It's honestly hard to say. Um, so the issue of deep fakes in particular is a pretty pervasive issue and it has exponentially grown since they kind of hit the web. Uh, There was actually a report back in September of 2019 that was launched by um, Deep Trace Labs where they used various tools to kind of study the issues. And they saw that it started around 14,000 videos in 2019 which was already doubled from the, seven plus thousand that was taken in 2018. And there are already 135 million views of those videos. Uh, In terms of how much it targets the teenage population, it's just hard to say because over 96% targets women. A lot of that is generally celebrities, well-known individuals, actresses. Um, And although there's no statistics that are available to see how much Teenagers and kids are targeted. There have been cases that have come to light with uh, w- targeting those individuals. Even back in April of this year, uh, Patrick Carey, a man from uh, Rhode Island, I believe, or Long Island, uh, was sentenced to six months in jail after creating deep fakes of his former classmates and then sharing them on a porn site. Uh, so it's very hard to say how much of it targets kids per se, but it's a growing issue online. So, Natalie, social media platforms have addressed
4: the deepfake issue in a variety of ways. For example, TikTok has said that deepfakes of private figures and young people are no longer allowed, and that other deepfakes that show realistic scenes have to be labeled to indicate that they are fake or altered. Other platforms, including adult websites, provide access to online tools such as Take It Down that allows teens to report explicit images of themselves. Do you think that these platforms and websites are doing enough to combat the deepfake problem?
6: Well, on one hand, any step in the direction of addressing deepfake content is a step in the right direction. On the other hand, there's there's still too many issues that exist that don't cover the grand scope of the problem. Um, reporting an image doesn't make the problem go to w- go away. It doesn't change the fact that it's already hit the web. Um, and if it makes it online, it's as good as gone. Think about a glitter bomb goes off on your carpet. No matter how much you scrub several years down the line, you're still going to find glitter all over the place. <laughs> so um Although the tools are great, they just don't address the issue um, sufficiently. Especially, So something like Take It Down is fantastic. It's a great resource, but you have loopholes for it because it targets a very specific kind of image. You submit one image, and then that gets a uh, essentially kind of like a, a hashtag associated with it. And if it's found online, that exact image, then it gets removed. But if somebody takes that image, digitally alters it, you have to submit that new digitally altered photo. It's not going to automatically account for any kind of changes that have been made. Um, and the other aspect is that's a very limited amount of websites and platforms that are taking steps. There's hundreds of other websites out there that, you know, great on great on uh, Instagram, TikTok, but they don't care. And so it, there needs to be uh, greater greater targeting of these kind of websites and more work that's done because at the end of the day uh, there's no accountability and although some websites say that here's some tools to take down these images uh, the victims they can only do so much and they can only find out so much
5: and what does that targeting look like Uh, we've seen you know some attempts to sue uh, social media platforms of course they're insulated in some regards Uh, We've seen some legislation. We've seen existing intellectual property and child sex abuse laws. What what does the solution look like?
6: It's going to have to be multifaceted. It's going to have to come from legislators, educators. The whole community kind of has to pitch into this. The children can rely on child pornography laws that are in place because those are encompassing enough to cover digitally altered images. But once you step outside of that threshold and you pass that, um, you pass out from being a minor, there's virtually no laws that can really support you. Sure, there's some criminal statutes, sure there's the, some penalties, there's IP laws that can come into play, like copyright your privacy laws, et cetera, but there's no laws that really target this issue. There's a couple of states that have introduced legislation recently, um, California being one of them, and a couple others that have kind of tapered in. But the grand scope of the U.S. doesn't have anything to address it. There's even um, there's even issues that exist already with the fact that, obviously, based in uh, back in '96, the U.S. had passed the Communications Decency Act, and that was what targeted pornographic material online. Unfortunately, there's been a section that has remained in there, which is section 230, which pretty much grants third-party immunity for um, publishers' of content. So if they're not the ones that originally posted it, it's not their problem. And as we know, a lot of content online is anonymous. So if you can't trace it back to that person, you are out of luck. Um, If you're somebody who's an adult and you have these images created, you're out of luck because you can't, you can't sue the website and you don't know who you're going after. So you, uh, the two-part approach, or at least part of the start for it is education for kids, for minors, for parents of that. This is a reality. Um, times have changed since a lot of us have been in school. Um, we didn't have to worry about AI technology. And, um, I think Information needs to be introduced to educate kids because a lot of the time they don't even know the like the potential consequences. You've seen what a car accident, um, the results of a car accident, you have a lot of damage that comes from that. Kids don't necessarily understand it until it's presented to them in a way that can drastically showcase um, the, the possible outcomes because it's damaging not only to the victims because uh, these kids from this high school, it's not like they're going to get off scot-free. That's going to be part of their record. So it affects both individuals. It affects both the victims, and it affects the perpetrators that commit these crimes, because sometimes they don't even know. uh, Because for them, it's a harmless joke. For kids, a lot of the time, it's just a harmless joke. So education is a big part of it. Um, The second part of it, uh, legislation needs to step in. <laughs> There's just not enough out there to target these things. And although some legislators state that, well, there are laws in place that target aspects of this, they absolutely have to introduce laws that actually target the language of deep fakes and AI and how it's integrated into our society. Thank you
2: to our guest, uh, Natalie Elizarov, an intellectual property attorney, for that uh, reality check on artificial intelligence. Our next guest is a frequent contributor to legal face-off, attorney Antonio Ramanucci with the law firm of Ramanucci and
5: Bland, talking about some of his current cases. Tony, welcome back. It's a pleasure to have you as always. Uh in the year following a firearm injury. Child and adolescent survivors endured significant increases in pain, psychiatric and substance use disorders compared to their peers. That's according to research published this Monday in the journal Health Affairs. Your client, Keely Roberts, whose son Cooper was a victim in the July 4th, 2022 Highland Park shooting, was quoted in the article discussing this study. How is she doing? How is Cooper doing? And what are your thoughts on uh, the results of this uh, look into the victims of shootings?
7: Well, thank you very much, Rich. And I think this is a very important topic, uh, not only for the families that have been involved in these shootings, but also for our entire communities, because what we have to realize, these these cases just don't affect uh, the person who's been shot. Or in this case, we're talking about children. It's not just the child. Really, the suffering impacts the entire family. So when you look at the specific issue, which you talked about, what is the year after a shooting like? Well, I can tell you very, very bluntly now, because I represent so many children in different shootings and and Cooper being one of them, that I've seen them through this past year. I've seen them now 15 months, 16 months post-injury, and it's devastating. Um, they don't heal. I mean, they get surgery, the scars might go away, but the physical ailments that transfer over to the psychiatric side, especially when it comes to children, is devastating. I see the changes not only in the child, but also in the entire family.
4: So Tony, what's the latest status of that lawsuit involving the Highland Park shooting?
7: Well, it's a very complex status right now, Christina. What happened is, you know, we filed this lawsuit in state court in Lake County, uh, Illinois, because we pled all state claims against the gun manufacturer, against the gun distributors, um, against uh, the shooter and his father. And the gun manufacturer in this case, Smith & Wesson, uh, felt it appropriate to uh, remove the case from state court and send it to federal court. Uh, a judge disagreed and he remanded it back to state court, but now Smith & Wesson is in the process of taking an appeal of that. So we're in this limbo situation where we can't get to what's called at issue on the case yet uh, because we're not really decided yet where the case is going to remain.
5: When speaking of the father of the shooter in Highland Park last week, he pled guilty uh, on misdemeanor reckless conduct charges for helping his son get the gun that was involved in that tragedy. What are your thoughts on, on that development? Well,
7: I, I thought it was a, a, a monumental development, Rich, because number one, as you know, we made the father a defendant in our lawsuit. And we were grateful that Eric Einhardt, who was the state's attorney in Lake County, was able to find a charge or a number of charges that we, he could bring to trial. And in fact, uh, the father pled guilty to a misdemeanor reckless conduct. So it's this sort of transformational type of litigation and criminal prosecution, which will send the right message in this case specifically to parents that even though your child is an adult, if you vouch for that child in a way in which, you know, could or might harm others, you will be held out. You will be held accountable. And, and that's the type of, of transformational prosecutions both on the civil side and on the criminal side that we need to see continue.
4: So, Tony, a lot of parallels, unfortunately, to the shooting earlier this year at Old National Bank in Louisville. Where does that stand? And, um, you know, with respect to the gun manufacturer aspect of the case, can you do you care to comment on that?
7: Well, I, I can comment briefly, uh, Christina, that case has not yet uh, been filed, meaning the complaint hasn't been filed yet, so we're not, uh, the lawsuit is not public. Uh, but hopefully, we're, we're hoping soon. You know, that case presents its own challenges because the employees um, or the people who were shot at that time were employees of the bank. So we have to pursue all angles Uh, including whether or not the bank had any responsibility, what sort of remedies may apply to the people who were shot or not. But what we do know is that the shooter in this case used a gun uh, from a manufacturer called Radical Defense, uh, right? Great name for an AR-style rifle. But what's interesting about this gun manufacturer is they um, they manufacture probably the absolute cheapest AR15 assault style weapon that exists. So, if you're a teenager with, you know, a minimum wage job, uh, bagging groceries like I used to when I was a teenager, and as soon as you become an adult and you can lawfully buy a gun or get one illegally, Well, you can buy the cheapest one possible from Radical. And that's what happened here. Uh, This was the cheapest gun that he could buy, and he used it to cause absolute human destruction.
2: Thank you to our guest, uh, Antonio Romanucci. With the law firm of Romanucci and Bland, for joining us on Legal
0: Faceoff. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Face Off. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will, and Emery, and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble, and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm Firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit MWE.com. All right, our
2: next segment on Legal Face Off is the always popular legal Grag bag. And our guests are veterans of the show, Albert Solar, an attorney, legal media analyst and founder of Solar Legal LLC and Grant Dixon, a founder of the Dixon Law Firm uh, located in
5: LaGrange. First up, Rich, the Trump Watch. Trump Watch continues as it does on every grab bag, everyone. Uh, today, a few minutes ago, Trump and his co-defendants asked a judge to grant a mistrial. In the. let's make sure we understand which case we're talking about now, right? This is the civil business fraud case in New York. Uh, his sons testified uh, Ivanka testified last week that was uh kind of interesting. Um, we saw two different versions of uh, Don Trump Jr. Uh, from the prosecution th- from the defense but today Tina he asked for a mistrial saying that uh, uh, the judge has been biased he said that uh, evidence of a apparent and actual bias is tangible and overwhelming. it's a 30-page filing uh, again accusing judge Ingeron of this bias. Pretty routine, not unexpected for Trump. We don't think that's going to go anywhere. Again, uh, the fraud has already been adjudicated. The only question now is the penalty. So I think that will go nowhere. In addition to that, we'll talk about the mistrial in a second, Tina. The other interesting story coming out of Trump Watch this week is that um, Jenna Ellis, who was one of the indicted co-conspirators uh, who flipped on Trump, made a deal as part of the deal, the testimony that she gave was released um and uh, this is in the uh in the deposition we saw this week in the Georgia case the interfe- the election interference case she said just what do you think you've heard every wacky Trump legal story one of his former lawyers said that he was not going to vacate the White House that despite the overwhelming evidence that he lost, she said that he said he's not going to leave that uh, according to her and deputy chief of staff Dan Cavino. He was going to refuse to cede power, that he said in an excited tone. And I quote her: "Well, we don't care. We're not going to leave. Not so. It's hard to believe that this would not be surprising, but it really isn't surprising. Who is shocked by the idea that Trump thought, you know what? Let him change the locks. If, I, if I, we're going to change the locks, if I just don't leave this building, I get to be president, right? That was his his learned his learned legal theory. Surprised by that, Tina?"
4: No, I'm not surprised by anything, Rich. And frankly, you know, I think what's getting really interesting is trying to figure out what the timing is going to be for his trial um, and what how it's going to interplay with the election and whether he's going to be in trial as the election happens. And yet, notwithstanding all of this, his approval rating is still something like 60%. So, um, I mean, like he's I mean, he is like in the far lead in terms of the Republican nomination. I mean, he's he is just I mean, he's smoking everybody else. So, I mean, it's that. this is why we have a weekly Trump watch, Rich, because we need to be watching Trump every show.
5: Yeah. Well, to point, Grant, the judge uh, or the D.A., Fonnie Willis in the Georgia case said that that trial will last well through the 24 election and into 2025. So, you know, we have this potential of an indicted felon being elected president. And that's possible. Under the Constitution, that's not illegal. You know, we know that he can't be prosecuted for things that happened during his presidency, but there's a real chance that the voters will not only elect a Republican candidate for president, but that he may be elected president while uh, indicted.
8: Yeah, I don't I don't think there's any bottom to this. It's just just when you think that this is as low as things can get, there just is a new low. And I do think the only interesting legal issue at this point is what happens if he is convicted of a felony after the election that elected him president. Um, there, I don't really think at this point in time, you know, to quote Donald Trump, if he walked down uh, in the middle of New York and shot somebody that 60 percent of the voters on the Republican side at least would vote for him. I think that that would happen. There's really nothing he can do or has done that's going to convince anybody who's decided to elect him that that it was wrong. He's he's figured out a way to make this work. And uh, I, time will tell. Whether the entire country will support that. But certainly the likely voters who are being polled right now seem to seem to not care at all about anything that he's done, whether it's legal or not.
5: Yeah. Uh
9: Albert, any chance that this mistrial motion is granted in New York? Uh no, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. And uh just a quick clarification. I'm the I'm now the chair of our entertainment and litigation group at Scurincy Hollenbeck in New York, just to clarify. Um, But thank you for having me. Uh, No, I I don't think it will. I I don't think it's going to be successful. I think what we've seen is this happens a lot. I think that Trump and his team uses whatever tactics are possible to stall, push, and not get to a result. And I think that judges and courts, they're frankly tired of it. Uh, The judges have gotten, I think, stricter with him, and they've admonished him uh, many times. Uh, I I don't think it's going to be successful. No, I
2: don't. Okay. And next, Rich, it looks like the Supreme Court is finally addressing the need for ethics rules.
5: Well, they are and they aren't. I mean, you know, this is long overdue. Of course, we've covered on this show countless examples of uh, what can be charitably considered uh, ethical violations, if not downright, you know, criminal violations in some respect, but lots of examples of, you know, justices accepting lavish gifts and trips and, you know, fishing expeditions and cars and all sorts of gifts that, any you know local circuit court judge would be barred from having, but you know these nine people who are elected to the highest court of the land uh, with lifetime appointments aren't subject to any of these regular ethical rules. So this is an attempt, finally, after lots of outcry, after lots of uh, discussion uh, that went nowhere, but finally some effort to institute these uh, a code of ethics. It's a nine-page code. It says that it merely codifies a lot of the regulations that we're living under already. But again, they haven't followed them. Um, The key takeaway, I think, from this, Tina, is that it doesn't really have any enforcement mechanism. So we've seen, for example, um, Justice Alito go to extremes to explain why you know if it wasn't me sitting on this private chat it would be someone else so it's not really a big deal. Well if he's willing to explain his violations that way what wow this this has no teeth right there's no there's no enforcement mechanism so it's a good first step I think but it's not really the solution that's necessary.
4: Yeah, I agree Rich that it is a good first step it'll be interesting to see where it goes from here how politicized the process gets whether there will be an enforcement mechanism or not i mean the judicial system the judges are generally speaking put aside the supreme court for a moment judges are held to a higher standard right and so it's going to be interesting to see how that ends up translating if it translates into this particular set of rules
5: yeah and and albert the the wording of one of the sections the key sections is so legally sounding, and you can sort of drive a a truck through it. It says, this is in the commentary, that in weighing a speaking engagement, the justice should, quote, consider whether doing so would create an appearance of impropriety in the minds of reasonable members of the public. I mean, that's all well and good. But what does it mean? We've already, again, seen Thomas and Alito explain that we don't think we did anything wrong. So if you leave it up to them, then, you know, I don't think anything's going to change. So maybe this is a good first step, but maybe stronger language is needed down the road.
9: Yeah. You know what? I think I think it is a good first step. If nothing else, what it does is it's good to have a reminder on paper. Right. So in other words, everyone's conduct is, depends on their own integrity and what they decide to do as far as their ethical standards. But it is nice to have something on paper written that reminds you that someone is watching. Right. If you really think about it, that what separates other countries from our country and third world countries from the U.S. is the rule of law. I've always believed that you can go to a court and get a fair hearing and a fair uh, case, usually. Right. And you expect that of federal judges, state judges, and you certainly expect that of a Supreme Court. And what we've been seeing with these gifts and these flights and it is it's really improper. And the court's already very politicized, which it should not be. Uh, But it always has been. And now with the introduction of this code, I think what it does is it reminds everyone on the panel, look, now we're up to a standard. We have to answer to some standard. It may not be tight. It may you may be able to drive a truck through it. At least it's something that reminds you that someone is watching. That's a good first step. But it does need to go a lot, a lot farther, a lot farther, in my opinion. Grant?
8: Yeah, what most people don't know, and I worked in the federal courts for a period of time is that federal judges are all sworn to lifetime appointments under Article 3 of the Constitution. And all federal judges are bound to a code of ethics and conduct that's been in place for nearly 50 years. But the minute they become a U.S. Supreme Court justice, they're no longer bound by those same standards. And this is an easy fix that is politically untenable. And it says a lot about what we don't know. Because the easy fix is you just say, you know what, the the code that applies to all other federal judges, it now applies to the U.S. Supreme Court. And there's an enforcement mechanism. There's all sorts of stuff there. They just don't want to do it because they know that there's stuff out there that if they got caught, they'd be screwed. And if you go back and now we know what we know about what they were taking, you go read some of these landmark decisions like Dobbs or Citizens United, you're like, wait a minute. That doesn't make sense now. Oh, now it does, because they're taking millions of dollars in perks. It it stinks to high heaven. It's an easy fix. This is a politically crafted nightmare. And it's just it's just dumb. It just fix the rule, make it right. And it'll never happen because the people in power know that if it gets fixed, they're going to lose power.
2: Okay, and the next topic uh, up for grabs in the legal grab bag, uh, Tina. It's an early Christmas for Millbank attorneys who are getting some pretty significant pay raises.
4: Yeah, Ron. So last week, the international law firm Millbank made what many in our industry are calling a surprising move, given where we are in terms of approaching year end, by announcing that it's giving its associates ten thousand dollar raises across the board. The impact of these raises is to increase the starting salary to $225,000 a year. As is often the case, this raise by Millbank is now setting other big law firms in motion to figure out whether or not they're going to match in order to stay competitive. And for many legal pundits, is a bit of a head-scratcher during a year that we've seen many layoffs, both at law firms as well as at companies uh, many law firms are pushing back start dates for their associates, and some are actually offering them money to defer a year. Um, we're seeing lateral hiring declines, and we actually just saw the decline and the collapse of Strook. So a lot of folks are wondering why is this happening when the when the economic climate is the way it is, and some would say in 2024, it's probably not going to meaningfully improve. A lot of firms are at least considering making the raises to stay competitive for top talent. Um, these types of increases, you know, just putting aside the actual costs themselves of increasing associates this way across the board, comes with other types of costs too, Rich, including holding associates to an even higher expectation for performance and productivity, They already have to develop at a very steep trajectory when they graduate so that they can show that they're making their firms money and performing to the highest standards for clients. These types of increases also put pressure on those firms in the market, which may be less profitable and could end up accelerating the demise of firms that may already be hanging in the balance rich.
5: I, mean, I think on paper what you're saying is correct that this additional increase in competition carries with it the additional burden of performance and um, you know service. But I, I think in, in reality, at least what I'm seeing and what I, people I speak to, this is by the way, this is like topic one, not this particular story, but topic one when I get together with lawyers or clients is like it's the get off my lawn. It's the, you know, Clint Eastwood and uh, Gran Turismo. It's um, what's wrong with this next generation, right? And, and consistently what we're talking about, what I'm seeing is overpaying and under delivering. So yes, the overpaying part we get from Millbank, I just don't see the, you know, commensurate increase in the delivery of the product. What I'm seeing, unfortunately, is you've got to overpay for people and not get the same quality that you were before for less of a salary, and that's just the reality, unfortunately, of what we're doing now. Hopefully, that's turning a little as the market turns. The latest statistics, not just in the legal industry, but across the board, is that um, you know the economy is turning a little, and it's more of a you know market for those who have jobs rather than those who are seeking jobs. Hopefully, that'll trickle down and make performance better, but. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, I'm 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 happy to pay, as I'm sure you are, Tina, as I'm sure Millbank is, increased salaries as long as I'm getting additional performance, which I think a lot of us are are not seeing. Grant, what, what's your what's your perspective on this?
8: Yeah, I, my idea in this one was that this is a headline grabber to get the top people to pay attention to Millbank. You know, in the cost per person, what is it, four hundred bucks a pay period or something? When you're making two hundred plus a thousand dollars a year, it's nothing but it, it creates exactly what we're dealing with right now. Everybody's talking about Millbank right now. And the naysayers are all gonna be complaining because they have to meet it to, in order to be able to compete with that top talent. I think your, your economics is absolutely correct, Rich, that look, at the end of the day, a law firm has to make money. And if they're paying their first year associates who are effectively worthless in terms of contributing to the bottom line, then th- they have to make up that money someplace. And at some point in time, those two graphs intersect, and they just don't work very well past that.
9: Albert, you're in this market. Talk to us. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, what's interesting is, first of all, your comment about overpaid, underdelivered, I agree with 1,000%. Uh, What I've seen is a lot of the folks that are coming in, fresh out of law school, first year, second years, they're a different mentality. The idea of hard work, being here late, learning your craft, becoming proficient, has become secondary to what happened post-COVID, which was work from home, not coming to the office. My position on that has always been, and I say it to the associates at my firm, is that by being together in an office, you're collaborating. I'm getting to know you, your work. I'm bringing you on cases. I'm bringing you on matters. We learned how each other interacts with this team. So the folks that are actually in the office, just as an aside, I work with very closely because I know them. I understand their work product. They understand what I expect, the level of, of professionalism that I expect. And the majority of the, of the associates, they do want money, but they don't want to be in the office and they don't want to do the extra work and they want to pawn off work. That's one. The second thing is, you look, some of these firms are charging $1,500, $1,700 an hour. I have colleagues that charge $2,000 an hour. So I don't know what Milbank's position is, if they have the type of clients to support that rate, I doubt it. But it all comes down to the economics of the clients that you have. But with the mergers and the consolidation in a lot of these businesses, there are less clients that can pay that rate, which is why you see a lot of law firms merging, right? Especially in the middle market, mid-level, uh, mid-sized firms, they are joining because the clients are fewer and the ones that can pay those rates are fewer. But I, I also agree with it is a marketing play Millbank's in the news. I think they did what they wanted to do and associates who are out for a quick buck but not for client development or professional development they're going go they're going to look to Millbank and firms that are offering more. The marketing piece is interesting. I didn't think of that but you know there's always every couple of years Tina
5: there's always the story of the firm the big law firm that you know expands the salary and then every other firm has to you know fall line but yeah I guess there's a value to the marketing uh, being first. And, uh, you know, you get to be that leader in salary that does have, I'm sure, an impact. And maybe it outweighs the additional compensation you're paying. It's a really interesting uh, point.
2: OK, our next topic on the legal grab bag, hockey, Rich. It's always been a rough sport, but rarely
5: deadly until now. now this is an interesting development. Uh, Adam Johnson was a former NHL player who died, um, you know, a few minutes after, a little while after he was cut. His neck was actually cut by a blade of an opposing player in England in this English league they were playing in um and uh, he was taken away since that report yesterday someone the police have not named the suspect but presumably it's the other player who came in contact with his neck was arrested on suspicion of manslaughter now I've tried to take a bit of a deep dive admittedly my knowledge of uh, of English criminal law is not extensive but I think in England uh being charged is uh sort of like being questioned here. To be questioned, you have to be charged. Regardless, there's definitely some investigation as to whether this was an intentional or non-intentional act, whether the standard for manslaughter can be applied here. Now, at first glance, anyone would think that that was a hockey play that was routine. And you know who would try to do that intentionally or even negligently? But look at the video many, many times, which I have yeah. I mean, there's some there's some possibility that he did so intentionally. It's almost like a kick. And obviously, mm-hmm. after looking at the video and perhaps doing their investigation, obviously, they talked to everyone involved. Um, they at least determined that there might be probable cause to to for a possible charge of manslaughter. Certainly, if he kicked him, the question becomes, did he kick him with the intent of severing his neck? Probably not. That's why it's not a murder charge. He didn't have the men's rea. But if he kicked him knowing that that's a possibility that meets the standard of manslaughter pretty much anywhere in the western world. So it's an interesting case. We'll see what develops Tina, but um what are your thoughts on it?
4: I mean my thoughts are that I'm glad someone's looking into this and it's really unfortunate if this ends up becoming a manslaughter because it's hard. I mean we all love hockey, been to many games over the years. It's a fast moving sport. It's really hard at first blush, as you noted, Rich, to see what's really going on there. But after watching it multiple times and hearing about the facts as they're being uncovered, he had no business to have his leg in the air. I mean, whether I mean, I I find it a bit doubtful unless he had a personal vendetta against this guy. I find it hard to believe that he did that like leg raise and kick with the men's Rhea to murder. But. These guys know better than anybody that their feet are weapons. They have blades on the bottom of their feet. And the whole notion of kicking your leg up, especially when you're approaching um, another player where you know that you can just do serious damage. I mean, that just to me is is just it, it, it's shocking and it's really sad. Very sad.
5: That's well stated. And, and Albert, you know, especially that's all especially true when you consider that neck guards are not required in most leagues. Now every league is revisiting their policy and, you know, perhaps a neck guard would have prevented this tragedy. But yeah, what do you think? I mean, you've represented athletes before. What, what are your thoughts when you look at this video?
9: You know, uh, as just an initial thing, look at the NFL, right? With The helmets, right? It takes something to happen to affect a change. And I think the only positive take out of this is that maybe they do wear the neck guards. I mean, if I was playing hockey or a son of mine, I, I'd require it. You want the most protection possible when the sports are that dangerous, right? Condolences to the family. It's a terrible, terrible story. Terrible accident would happen. But there's also the concept of the assumption of risk, right? These folks are playing games and they're playing sports that are extremely violent they're aggressive and they're dangerous. It's like when you do anything else in the NFL or if you're playing basketball or you're doing hockey, you're going to have that risk. When you get on the ice, you do assume that risk. However, what I what I always try to avoid is playing kind of Monday morning quarterback and looking at it a thousand times and trying to say, okay, there is something there because these events happen in real time, right? If you look at hockey, you have violent collisions. I mean, they are brutal, right? And so I can understand where a player maybe is coming full speed. It looks like he was coming at him fast. The instinctive reaction could have been to lift your leg up, to absorb that contact, right? But I do see the other side as well. The, the leg did come up and it looks like the skate was pointed at him. Do I think it was intentional? No. Do I think that somebody thought they were going to uh, hit his neck and, and and cause this? Absolutely not. But it is odd when you look at it several times. The skate should have never come up that far. But the leg and the defensive posture on a a player coming at you that quickly, I think is fair. Uh, as an instinctive reaction but it's going to be interesting because it's a really it's a close call i don't know if you want to set that precedent where now every skater that gets on the ice has to be concerned about what the natural game causes you to do there's an accident that comes from that i don't know that that's the precedent but this is such a sad story it's a tough call grant you're someone who for
5: a living holds parties responsible for injuries what do you see here
8: yeah, I mean, this is, manslaughter is by definition a reckless act. And the analogy I give people for recklessness is pretty simple. If you're driving through a school zone and you're going five miles an hour over the speed limit and you get in an accident, you know, that's negligence. Uh, you, you're not doing anything that's super dangerous. If you go through that same school zone, 60 miles an hour over the speed limit, and you run over a, a, a gaggle of kids, th- that's recklessness. The conduct here, I think, is reckless. Your, your first-year skater knows you never bring your blades up, ever. It, you are trained in a million ways, never bring your blades up. And when you first look at that video, it looks like it's just incidental contact. But as Tina was saying, you, you kind of slow things down and you look at it. He clearly lifts his left leg up in the air and not just up to his waistline. His leg is way up there. And he certainly well, as far as we know, it doesn't look like he intentionally tried to slash this guy's neck, but he's certainly engaged in something that is reckless. And I think he's going to be held accountable for it.
2: Okay, switching gears here on the legal grab bag, Tina, Mariah Carey could be singing the blues over a new lawsuit.
4: Yeah, Ron. So tis the season to be jolly and for Mariah Carey to be sued again. Our listeners will remember that we were having this conversation last year at about this time, um, when Mariah Carey was blessed at Christmas time with a lawsuit alleging copyright infringement and unjust enrichment with what is now a 30-year-old Christmas hit. All I want for Christmas is you. Um, This time to the tune of $20 million. Um, It's the same gentleman who sued her last year. That lawsuit was in in Louisiana. This time it's in California federal court. The plaintiff is Andy Stone, who is known professionally as Vince Vance. He filed a new lawsuit along with a co-plaintiff, Troy Powers, who he claims was the co-writer of the song. He sued Mariah Carey, her co-songwriter, and Sony Music. He dropped these charges um, or the lawsuit that he had filed in Louisiana last year. He claims that he and his co-plaintiff wrote a song by the same name in 1989 and that it's significantly similar to the song that Mariah Carey released in 1994. Rich, we've seen a lot of these cases over the years on on legal face-off. It's the type of claims that you would expect to see in a copyright infringement case. They go through what they purport are allegations of overlap in the lyrics, as well as chord progressions. They say that there's at least a 50% overlap. I found this particular part funny, where they talk about how the phrase, all I want for Christmas is you, was unique Back when they wrote the song, but that it's not all that unique now. So, what's interesting is that they claim that Mariah Carey had access to the song. That's an important part of these copyright infringement cases. They said their song was out by the time that Carey and her co writer had claimed to write the song. They also said they got a lot of airplay after they performed their song at the White House in the spring of 1994 and it was only after that appearance that mariah carey had included her version of the song on her own holiday album rich i mean we've seen so many of these cases over the years i mean having a 50 percent overlap especially in this day and age with some of the other cases that we've seen with some of the pretty famous uh musicians and songwriters that we've talked about over the last couple of years i i think that this one is really as they say full of hooey but. Uh, I would be interested to hear what you have to say.
5: I don't know. I mean, I think on the scale of these cases, this one's not bad. I mean, the evidence, if they played in the White House, if they charted, if they used that many of the same verses, I don't know. I mean, to me, that at least survives the like BS test that so many of these cases fail by. It probably survives an MSJ. And uh, I mean, we see some wacky ones. I always judge it based on you know some of the, uh, the names of the parties. <laughs> the fact that this guy is Andy Stone. And then he's known professionally. as Vince Vance? I don't know. To me, that's credibility issue number one. But no, no, to to me, this is not as bad as some of the other wacky ones we've seen. Um, But you're the expert on this. I don't know. Albert, you deal with these cases all the time. Uh, Yeah. Does
9: does Mariah pay on this one? No, I I don't think so. Um, You know what happens is just the music industry. First of all, there's no revenue to be had for artists. The only revenue artists have, unless you're a huge heavy hitter, like a Mariah, like IJZ, is from the performance and the concerts, right? Typically, an artist will carve out concerts and performances from a record deal precisely because the streaming is so minuscule and tiny. You have to have 350,000 streams, I believe, to just earn minimum wage. Most artists are not in that, that boat to live from their art. There's too much music, a lot of saturation of bad music poorly mixed, poorly mastered. So it's very difficult today. Having said that, I see this a lot. Uh, I've had many cases like this where when you bring on an expert, they remind you that certain chord progressions, certain beats, certain parts of the music are not copyrightable because there's only a finite amount of chords that exist and the chord progressions that exist. When it comes to the lyrics, unless it's exactly the same, um, the idea that concepts, these general concepts about Christmas, Christmas time especially in a song like Mariah's that's arguably the biggest Christmas song of all time. She pulls in millions, millions of dollars every every holiday season without doing anything, which is a, a gift. It's a great thing. But I've just seen so many times that artists who are relatively unknown compared to the bigger artists and the more significant artists, they make these claims. What they're trying to really do is have the settlement where they just are given a tiny portion of the publishing to go away. Right. To fight this suit is going to take a long time. You're in federal court and it's expensive. So sometimes I'm not saying it'll happen here, but sometimes what they'll do is they'll get a little bit of publishing as a token. Get out of here, assuming that the facts even support the claim. Right. I haven't heard the two songs side by side. What I can tell you is that nine times out of ten, in my experience, there's absolutely no merit to any of this. Uh, Mariah Carey was probably not making this incredible song because Vince Vance uh, released this song. I just don't see it. But again, I don't know the facts, but I don't think she pays on this.
4: I'm, I'm glad that there's another skeptic among us.
8: <laughs> <laughs>
4: there's three. There, and yet another one.
9: <laughs>
8: <laughs> All I want for Christmas is this suit to go away if I'm Mariah Carey.
9: Yes.
2: <laughs> okay, and Rich, next up, the Michigan head football coach, Jim Harbaugh, had a bad week and he wasn't even on the field.
5: Yeah, he was suspended for three games by the Big Ten, not by the NCAA. That investigation continues, but by the Big Ten, the conference that Michigan's in, of course, um, for not being directly involved with this scandal involving videotaping other uh, other schools, other teams, but because he is the bottom line, right? The buck stops with him is the allegation. Well, he turned around, as did the University of Michigan, his employer, and filed a lawsuit, um, and they filed an immediate TRO asking the court to allow him to coach Uh, the remainder of the games. Well, the hearing on that will be this Friday. Uh, He is, you know, not coaching at the moment, uh, although it's a really weird uh, punishment because he's allowed to basically do everything else except for be on the sidelines. So I'm not really, including recruit, right? Like one of the main responsibilities of a Jim Harbaugh is to recruit. So if he's he's allowed to recruit, then, you know, Michigan's like undefeated. They're what, the number three team in the country. I don't know that they're going to be really penalized if Harbaugh is not on the sideline. Uh, The real penalty would be just barring him from the program and especially recruiting. That being said, interestingly enough, yesterday Harbaugh was quoted saying that uh, he always wants to be a lawyer and he wishes he could uh, get up there and and thunder on a jury like Tom Cruise and a few good men. Um, But, you know, he's looking for his due process, as he called it. And uh, interestingly, I think either the case has been removed or will be removed. There's talk of removing it, perhaps taking away The possibility that you've got a Homer judge, a Wolverine fan, the initial judge was assigned to is actually a lecturer at the university. So they were replaced. But, um, yeah, you know, more using the courts here uh, in uh, more more of the intersection between sports and courts here. But we'll see what happens uh, on Friday on this hearing.
4: Yeah, Rich, I mean, I don't have anything to add. I think that you summed it up nicely. Other than I think what we're seeing is, you know, increased litigation charges of this ilk. Um, particularly with respect to colleges. I mean, granted, what happened with Northwestern is a bit different, but I think there is a trend towards taking any types of claims like this very seriously, which I think is the right decision. I still am a proponent of people are not guilty. Um, you know, out of the gate that you need to actually demonstrate that you know, that the facts are leaning towards and indicate that a person is guilty. But that being said, I think it's a good thing that these types of claims are being taken seriously because if they aren't, then sometimes what comes behind it is worse than dealing with it on the front end.
5: Yeah, I think it's important to remember that's well stated. I think it's important to remember, Grant, that, you know, we often conflate one's individual rights in the world to the rights that you give up when you are a, an athlete or a coach, right? This is not the real world. In the real world, you're afforded uh, constitutional rights, due process, etc. Jim Harbaugh and his university agreed to be a member of the Big Ten, and they contractually agreed to let the Big Ten adjudicate these disputes. You can't do that and get all the benefits of the Big Ten, including record numbers of Media rights, right? Record dollars from their, their media package and then say, Oh, well, in this case, we don't think it's fair. We're going to go to the courts. It's one or the other. And people forget that just like in major league baseball, the NFL, they have their own code of conduct. And by being a player, you give up your right to the court in exchange for the billion, you know, millions of dollars you make. I see no difference here. Why is Michigan suing the big 10 when they've agreed that they're the adjudicator of these kind of disputes?
8: Yeah, you're 100 percent right, Rich. And this is I think actually Michigan's position is really interesting only because the stuff I've read and the videos I've seen, Michigan clearly is stealing signals. And so if I'm advising the chancellor at Michigan, I say, take the suspension. It's only three or four games. It might take through the postseason, but let it go. And maybe the NCAA, NCAA goes easy on us on the final sanction. my personal opinion is what's going to happen now for sure is Michigan's going to get the death penalty. No, no recruiting. They're going to be able to have no, no games. It's all over for them. And somebody in the room with the chancellor and giving them advice is, is giving them really bad advice. Because if I'm on the NCAA rules committee, I'm coming down hard on Michigan now. And if I'm Alabama or any of the other top teams, I'm just licking my lips because that's one more Big Ten team that is out of the running next year.
5: 100% agree. It just shows, Albert, I think the arrogance of a Michigan, of a Northwestern, and thinking that we could outmaneuver this governing body. And, you know, the NCAA has a new leader, and they're not, they're not just going to say, oh, okay, you're right, Harbaugh, go on your merry way.
9: Yeah, no, it's, it's important to keep the integrity of the game, right? I'm with Grant on this. I think they're going to get the death penalty as well. I mean, look what happened to USC with the Reggie Bush uh, fiasco, right? That doesn't matter how you look at it. That death penalty is brutal. I mean, the recruiting, the lack of recruiting, it stops your entire game. They even lost all their championships uh, during those years. Um, But, uh, no, I I agree with Grant on this. I think that you just put your head down a little on this one, be humble about it. You made a mistake. You're cheating the game, okay? Okay. And you can be interpreted a million different ways. The fact is you're cheating the game, right? Play the game right. The NCAA has to enforce those rules. And, 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 and I think they're right. You can't have it. The game falls apart if you have that conduct. You can't have it.
2: Okay. And finally, Tina, being liked at work is a good thing until it's not, until someone gets a little creepy.
4: Yeah, Ron. So this one goes in the what's wrong with you category. So this story broke earlier this month about a British attorney, Richard Ashley Smith, who was disbarred, or as they say in the UK, stricken off by the British Solicitors Disciplinary Tribunal after a finding that he engaged in obsessive behavior toward a junior attorney where he was a a partner. And as the junior attorney said, struck fear into her heart, he was also ordered to pay £60,000 in damages. So Smith was in a position of power and influence at his old firm with respect to his colleague and her career, which has all of the makings for a bad situation. He was also apparently told by a colleague to cease and desist from this bad behavior. And, you know, this tribunal considered a long list of obsessive behavior. So we're just going to hit on a few of the highlights here. First, he sent over a thousand messages to his junior colleague who was identified as person a including messages late at night and while she was on vacation he also gave her gifts and took her to dinner he apparently also took secret photos of her and videos of her it was when he decided to do this on a train when witnesses decided to call the british transport police and that's when he got caught So, the panel determined that Smith's conduct violated the trust that was placed in him by virtue of his position. She also had claimed that she was um, physically and mentally disturbed by everything which impacted her health and that it was an abuse of her trust in him. Apparently, she worked for him. So, Rich, I mean, this is among the creepier of these types of stories that we've seen. And frankly, I think, That it was the completely right result. People like this should not be licensed to practice.
5: Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't have much to add. There's no question that this behavior was sickening. And I mean, you had me at the uh, thousand plus messages like that that should be enough in the UK and the US wherever. I mean, that's that's a, a little bit of a step too far. Um, you know, listen, I mean, these days post-pandemic, the lines between work and uh your regular life sometimes are a little blurred. You know, I text my associates uh very frequently, but it's almost always about work and it's not, you know, uh obsessive like this or abusive like this. So you gotta be careful uh on on, on drawing that line. I do think that's a result of our of where we are today, right? I mean, we're post-pandemic, we're very comfortable being at home. Uh, we're all, you know, we uh Maybe not those of us on this Zoom, but you know, some of the younger attorneys are very uh, comfortable texting rather than emailing. I mean, I I don't think like most younger people even have email. I'm saying like you know, college or or, or high school kids they don't even know what email is, so they're very comfortable texting. But yeah, obviously you you got to know your boundaries and you can't take it too far. And this person clearly did, and thankfully uh, the solicitor's disciplinary tribunal to mm-hmm. Grant. Yeah, I don't know if you have anything to add or, or Albert on this one, but. Good
8: move. I, I don't think I've sent a thousand text messages in my life. A thousand <laughs> messages. My God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what took you so long? Um, but yeah, he's uh, you just wonder what else is on his computer or on his phone if he's going after this poor, uh, this poor lass uh, uh, so fervently. Uh, I think that he uh, he 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 did the opposite of what uh, Harbaugh did in the last story. He is doing a mea culpa. I'm sorry. It's my fault. He's, he's getting out of here, but yeah, I hope he never sees the inside of a courtroom as a lawyer ever again.
9: hundred percent. And also, you know, today is, 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 you gotta be really careful about the networking and the the manner in which firms try to build a camaraderie among the attorneys, right? And so the events that used to happen, you know, 10, 15 years ago are absolutely not happening now. The Christmas holiday parties are not like they used to be 15 years ago, but you have to be very careful because sensibilities are different. This guy's out of control. This is not even, this isn't even a lawyer uh, poor conduct issue. This is just, it's just wrong and there's no way, it's poor behavior, I don't care what you do, right? But it's interesting because you do have to have very, very careful thought about how just workplace interactions happen now. It's very different. We're in a different age. But, uh, yeah, that's just disgusting behavior. All right. I'm going to put you all on the the spot here for our last question. We'd like to end off with a roundtable question based
5: on one of our stories. We heard about Mariah Carey earlier in the show. And, uh, you know, all I want for Christmas is by far the most played holiday song of all time. It's one of the most played songs of all time for me. One of those earworms that get in your head. And you cannot get out of your head for months and months. So let's go around the horn. And what's one song that if you never heard again for the rest of your life, you would not regret it? Ron, do you have such a song that you're ready to put in the trash bin of recording history?
2: Oh, probably uh, the Jefferson Starship song. What is oh. it? Uh, we built this city. Um, <laughs> i don't even like to say the title.
5: Second, I thought as a radio guy, you would love that because what happens in the middle of that song? There's a radio broadcast. Weirdly, it's one of the weirder moments of any song. But yeah, that's. Uh, I agree it's with no you.
2: Bernie Taupin wrote it. I don't know what was going on. It's just I can't stand it.
5: Albert, any songs that uh, you're ready to put in the uh, the category of do not play ever again?
9: <laughs> I hate to say it, but Mariah's <laughs> Mariah's <laughs> Christmas song. <laughs> It's one of those where it's so good that it does consume you. And it's one of those things that, you know, that with George Michael's Last Christmas, which I think is great, too. I'm not a huge Christmas song, especially when they're that good and they stick in your mind throughout the year. So those two I'd knock out. But I like them both. But I'd knock them both out.
5: All right. Kind of a mixed answer there from our friend Albert.
9: (laughs) You
5: know, it doesn't have to be a Christmas song. Any song in the history of recording music that you were ready to that you that you run to the dial and, and turn when it comes on.
4: Um, yeah, I would say not so in keeping with Ron's theme of Jefferson Starship and Starship, Jefferson Airplane was amazing. I'm a big airplane fan, but you know, in keeping with that same genre and era of of Starship of We Built This City, nothing's gonna stop us now. That is a god awful song. It's just like every time it comes on the radio, I cannot turn it off fast enough.
5: You're picking the one that Ron did.
4: No, he picked. We built the city. There's oh. two
5: different songs. Yeah. they are both bad.
2: They,
4: yeah, they sound the same though. That that just that is precisely my point. They are both bad, and they are both the same era, and they're terrible.
5: Nothing's going to stop it now. From uh, from Mannequin, or maybe it was Mannequin Two on the Move. The, I uh, think
4: it was Mannequin.
5: From mannequin, a great great movie from the 90s. All right, Grant Dixon. Song that you're ready to just I, never hear again.
8: I'm gonna bring this back full full circle and go back to Christmas and uh unfortunately earworm everybody. Grandma got run over by a reindeer. <laughs>
9: <laughs> I'll second that
8: <laughs> if I ever hear that again, and a surprising number of stores play this at Christmas time. It is the most I mean, Mike. So, I'll listen to Mariah Carey for the rest of my life all day, if I don't have to listen to that "Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer" one more time.
5: Good one! Uh, I love that one. I love that choice. My, I've got, I've got so many because so many songs irritate the hell out of me. But, but ironically, two of my least favorite songs to hear that drive me insane are meant to, I think, have the opposite effect. One is called "Happy." Pharrell Williams that just literally gets in your head and never gets out and is the most irritating song to me again it's supposed to make you happy it makes me very angry and then the second song that's very similar is the infamous don't worry be happy by uh, Bobby McFedrin right where he's doing this whole thing and the my god nothing makes me angrier than these two songs that are that have the word happy in the title so I'll 86 those forever um uh, Leslie Lisa any any ones that you want to jump in on before we sign off I'm gonna go with baby shark oh baby shark dun, 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 baby shark yeah that, that definitely, I,
8: hate, I hate jump by Van Halen
5: I oh, see now you've committed a uh a,
8: I just can't that's a crime <laughs> against humanity you have to take that back <laughs>
5: <laughs> We will not accept any Van Halen uh, uh songs on on this category at all.
2: Okay. And on that note, literally, that's uh, our Legal Face-Off podcast for today. We'd like to thank our guests, Professor Jonathan Entton, Natalie Eliza Roth, Tony Romanucci, Albert Soler, and Grant Dixon, and our producers, Lisa Steagle and Ben Anderson. And please don't forget to like, subscribe, and share the Legal Face-Off podcast. And if you enjoy it, please rate it five stars. It certainly does deserve it. For Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff, I'm Ron Brown, and we'll talk to you in a few weeks.
1: It's Christina Martini and Rich Lenkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab, so hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we're blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone, and they'll let you know. Cover Covering Sports Hollywood, and don't forget.